Hello, welcome to Relatable. This is your host, Teresa Freeman. I speak with Pat Sargent, my neighbor and friend, who defines himself as a creative. He was in the military for 20 years, works for Booz Allen now, and teaches at George Mason, and serves several philanthropic initiatives. What prompted him to join the military, and what does it have to do with Eminem the Rapper? How should one pick between direct enlistment or enter in as an officer? And what helped him to transition to his current role at Booz Allen and life as an art entrepreneur? How does Pat create connection and build community and awareness through art? Listen in to find out and enjoy this episode. Pat, thanks for coming over. It was a long commute. Yes. Uh, I really appreciate you being on Relatable. And we've talked a couple of times. I've, I've tried to get you on here and you've been like, sure, sure, I'll be on. And now I finally trapped you <laughs> to being here. So I really appreciate it. I feel like you're somebody who honestly, in terms of what I'm trying to do with this podcast, you're such a great example of someone who has done a lot of different things in terms of their career path and you've pivoted and you've, I think, you know, for, for people that think there's only kind of this straight line to get to where you are, I think you're just a great example of that, not necessarily being the case in the way that you kind of weave through things. So I'm excited to talk to you and talk about those different paths and hear a little bit more about them and what influenced some of those decisions. And then what I think is great about interviewing people around our age is that you have this benefit of experience and kind of look back and say, maybe I didn't know it at the time, but wow, this is how this served me. And, and maybe it just gives a little color or opportunity for people to learn from that. Oh yeah. So thank you so much for being here. And well, let's start with a day in the life today, because I think it's always interesting to see, okay, what are you doing right now? I think it's fair to say you can talk more about this because you, you're you better to talk about yourself in terms of you have this art life and that someone that is creative and, and has this passion around art and does a lot with art. And then you're also in sort of the business corporate space. So maybe just talk a little bit about Pat today and where you are right now. I think it's important to, so I, I throw out a term, like people say, hey, you're an artist. And I like to prefer, I prefer the term, like I'm a creative. Right. Okay. Okay. You know, because creative creativity doesn't have a boundary, right? When we think about traditional art, you know, think about painting, drawing, right? We think about the common practices. And then of course that leads to, oh, you're a starving artist kind of conversation, right? Mm -hmm. But creativity really doesn't have that boundary, you know, those kind of stigmas attached to it. So like my corporate, so I work for Booz Allen during the day, right? I spend most of my time in my basement. I do what they ask me to do, right? And <laughs> like, it's like having uh, your food stuck through a slot. And I'm okay oh with that. What? It's kind of the way it works. Yeah. But the reality is, is that I also use my creative energy there. A few years ago, I worked at a corporate site on client site, right? Supporting mm -hmm. a, a client. And uh, our director said, you know, the nice thing about having Pat in the room is we'll all like be discussing a problem, but he'll take a completely different path to get to the conclusion that we'll all eventually reach. And so it's like that creative thinking, those mm -hmm. tools that you have to kind of 
deconstruct things and look at them from a different perspective. That becomes the valuable kind of commodity in my life. So it doesn't matter if I plug that into Booz Allen's work, mm -hmm. right? And doing consulting and that type of work. Um, if I'm doing analysis of a problem or if I'm doing a, hey, let's do a mural on the side of an American Legion in Arlington. You take that problem, uh, you kind of deconstruct it, and then you put it back together using the tools that you have to try to figure out how to get to the conclusion that you're interested in achieving. I really like that. And how long have you been at Booze? Oh, boy. Uh, so they've told me that I'm now a real Booze Allen person because I've been there over five years. So I've okay. been there for six. Okay. Uh, before that, I was on client site for 10. And then, uh, you know, you go backwards. I was director of security at a large defense contractor for about six years before that. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And then tell me about, in terms of your creative life, how does that show up today? What are the ways in which you get to operate as a creative outside of Booz Allen? Yeah, so it's complicated. Okay. <laughs> well, because, Let's go. again, Let's it, get into it, it. it has to do with that creative thing, right? So, number one, I have my own art business called Sergeant Tan, and I work with another guy, and uh, he, he and I uh, collaborate on various types of art making, usually printmaking. And uh, that business is also a place where I can put my paper making stuff that I do with veterans and their families and those time, types of community activities that I'm interested in. But those typically happen in partnership with other nonprofits or organizations like Peace Paper. Uh, they're centered out of Hamburg, Germany, and they'll fly over and I'll bring my, I have a lot of stuff. So they're happy about that. They don't have to bring their stuff. Mm -hmm. And so we'll go up to like Bryant University or Penn State or some other activity and we'll do workshops with veterans, community members, students. So that's one piece, that, that business side. And then I support a nonprofit at the Torpedo Factory Arts Center in Alexandria. So I'm on the board there. Uh, currently, I'm the treasurer. I was a past president. I've been there for about 10 years. And uh, we've been in existence since 1974, founded by a bunch of ladies, and continued on uh, that history. There's been about 40 members over the 40 years that we've been around. And then, this is at the Torpedo at Factory? At the Torpedo Factory. Okay, that's, so, that's such a cool place. Right? Yeah. And then uh, I teach at George Mason, so I teach art and art entrepreneurship as part of the School of Art there. And uh, anyway, so like it's complicated, right? I it's partner, a lot of layers. Yeah, so I partner with a lot of people. Um, my wife is extremely patient. Are you ever home? Yeah, there's that. There's that. So Ever sit still? Tell me a little bit more about, because I think it's so cool mm -hmm. on the community <laughs> side and on the like philanthropic side, what is some of the work that you do with the veterans? Let's start there. Yeah, so when I first got out of the military, I uh, discovered printmaking, and I'll come, in to come back to that. Okay. And I wanted to use printmaking as kind of a stepping stone to reach back to that community. I, I got out, I retired in 2002. Uh, that's at the beginning of those dual conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq. And um, I felt some guilt about leaving my comrades behind, right? They went off to war and I went home and raised my kids. Mm -hmm. And um, printmaking, unfortunately, happens mostly in your head. It's like, hey, let's sit down and draw a picture. And then you and I would sit here and just kind of not talk to each other, right? So there's no engagement there. And I ran into this little Quaker woman uh, named Tara Tappert. And she was starting this project called Arts, Military, and Healing. That kind of turned into a heavier interest in art. And then I discovered piece paper and then paper making came into it. And with paper making, uh, you cut up people's military uniforms and then turn them into handmade paper and then uh, create art with them out of this stuff. And there's a couple of aspects of that that's, that's really important. Yeah, It's time consuming um, so that 
if you and I are cutting up our clothes and you're cutting out the zippers and the buttons and this and the that, eventually you're going to say, oh, I remember when I was wearing these jeans and I did X, mm-hmm. right? So now you're relaying information about yourself. We're creating a connection, builds a stronger community. It gives you a better understanding of each other, changes the foundations of where we live because you're embedding that those experiences then into the people with you, but also into the product that's being produced. Right. And it, and it takes a while. Right? And there's that therapeutic lane that you get to. Yeah. I try to stay right. away from the therapy part of it. Right. Right. Um, I just mean more the, let me put, state it this way, more of a therapeutic benefit, right? Yeah. It's almost like, you know, kind of, you get to work through some stuff or just, and very p- people that are kinetic, right. Where you're actually kind of touching, feeling it and doing it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, so to come back to your, how you got there right, mm-hmm. with the veterans. So imagine like, uh, so you could take uh, hospital scrubs from Walter Reed. And if you work with the doctors and nurses and you cut up their scrubs, then they're repurposing their memories. All those drips and drops of PTSD that they get from their patients then get repurposed into these stories, mm-hmm. right? And so it's cathartic, right, from that perspective. Yeah. Um, if I want to build awareness about veterans' issues from a social perspective, then I might partner with somebody like Andy Yoder and make a two-and-a-half-story piece of paper flag out of hospital scrubs with community members and then hang that in the torpedo factory. Because then that tells a story about, hey, there's doctors and nurses treating all these people. Right. You know, blah, 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 blah. Tell me about how you, I mean, you mentioned a lot of different out of the gate, all these different ways <clears throat> that you've operated in your life. So you've been in the military and you've been in the corporate space and then as a creative. And so tell me a little bit about your path to, let's maybe just start with the military and your path there uh, and how that came to be. Oh, yeah, that's an easy one. Okay. So I'm originally from Detroit. Uh, we I grew up there until... Go like, Lions. The, the story is, um, I tell this in my class, I go, you know, my house where I grew up was two blocks from where Eminem grew up. Oh. Right? So now except, people have a frame of reference. Yeah, yeah. Except it's about 35, 40 years in between, okay, right? Okay. You know, because yeah. clearly I'm not the same age. <laughs> and then when I was you about when I was about nine, we moved up to farmland uh, in this rural area. Right, that part of that white flight, you know, when the car industry was hitting the toilet and yeah. mass layoffs, and so we ended up there. My mom got divorced. It was raising five kids, and uh, I had sold my car to go to the prom. Right, so I had no wheels, I had no job. Things were looking pretty bleak for Pat. I uh, went down to the recruiter and uh, said, "Hey, I'd like to go in the Air Force as soon as possible." And he said, "This was like in June." And he said, "How about February?" And I was like, "Oh shit, I'm gonna be sitting around doing nothing till February." Anyway, he calls me in September and says, still want to leave as soon as possible? I was like, yep. And he goes, I'll be by to pick you up in an hour. And I was on the bus to basic training. Wow. Yeah. So at 17, I was in the military and uh, I was a cop and I started guarding stuff. So that kind of, that decision was, hey, uh, is it patriotism? Not really. Is it because I wanted like this type of job? Well, not really. Um, I really like eating food. It was like a way out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my brother's a machinist. My other one works in construction. My other one was in the county road commission. I couldn't get a job at the plastic plant, those kind of things. Right, right. So, and you didn't have family. It wasn't like you had role models or people oh God, in, no. in the military. No, <laughs> yeah. no. Yeah. I was, uh, my brother, Mike, went in the Navy before me, but he went AWOL all over the world. So not really a role model I would have followed. Right, right. Yeah. And then once you got there, 
how did it feel to be there? Like, was it, were you, is it something that resonated? Like, you know, once you were part of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's really a tough, that's really a tough uh, question because it's not so much for me, the military wasn't like this idealistic thing. However, uh, I receive mentorship from mostly men uh, very well. And I shouldn't say mostly at that time in my life, I was 17. I didn't really have a dad. So um, before I went in the military, I learned hard work from Harold Pung on a farm. I learned about how to polish a floor from my brother's father-in-law working as a janitor, right? Yeah. He was in the Navy, ex-Navy guy. And uh, you know, when I, once I went in the military, um, I would you know, find these role models that would support me and give me the, like the next, next piece of direction that I didn't know I needed at the time. Right. And you then, know. and then how long were you in the military for? I did 20 years. You did 20 years. Oh yeah. So like I started out guarding airplanes. So you stand on a red line and, you know, yell at anybody that tries to cross it. Right. For 12 hours a night. That was great. And, uh, <laughs> I was like, man, this job sucks. Right. So, um, I joined the Air Force Honor Guard at the prodding of one of the officers I worked for. So I ended up in D.C. and um, did five funerals a day at Arlington. Mm. And uh, so I went from standing around to standing motionless. Right. So that was kind of funny. You know, so I was like, wow, this sucks more. And because uh, the bead of sweat starts at the back of your neck and works its way like slowly down, down your back. back. Yeah. Pools like, by your belt. And anyway, it's awful. But you can do it, right? Like you get trained. And so I was a pallbearer. And so we were right next to the family. And that's significant because at that point in my life, I was, what, 20? And I was exposed to all this grief, right? Like daily. Yes. And uh, the irony is our chaplain would come and visit our dorm. And uh, I'd ask him, like, why do you come over here so much, right? And fast forward, you know, 25 years, I was like, wow, I understand why he came over so much. For sure. What was that like being around that? I mean, are you somewhat removed because you're in that role and you're just, how do you, I guess, how, how do you separate from all of that? that? That'd be a lot to take on. Well, well, first off, you're young and I don't think you really understand the circumstances you find yourself in sometimes when you're young. Yeah. And it's the reflection that kind of drives that home. And so when you think about it at the time, we thought about it as a performance for the family and the person that they're grieving. Right. Later, you start connecting the human elements into that. Like if somebody's spouse jumps on the casket underneath the flag you're holding, or a little kid grabs his chest and falls over because he's pretending like uh, the firing party just shot him, right? Like there's the humor there's the sorrow, right? It's all connected together. Right. How And how long, you did that for five years, you said? I did it for uh, two. I did about 5,000 funerals. So. Oh, no, not 5,000, sorry. About, God, was it five a day for two years? So. Wow, wow. So it was a lot. But we did other things in there. I mean, we did parades and stuff at the White House. But the good news is, like, there's a lot of positives. I met a really great group of people, and we had a common focus and a common goal, and we achieved things and made connections that will serve me for life. Uh, I got a security clearance out of that, so my next job ended up at Space Command, and then I ended up in the space business. And so I was always one to take the next opportunity. Mm-hmm. Like um, they were, they were looking for somebody to make PowerPoint charts. It wasn't even PowerPoint at the time in the eighties, right? Right. Harvard graphics. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, yeah, what the hell is that? Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they asked my boss and he goes, I don't want to go to a little back office job. And I leaned around and said, I'll do it. And so next thing you know, I was making charts for this headquarters. Right. And then that got me into finance and supply and 
you got to take advantage of those paths when they present themselves. And you're somebody, this is something that I love to hear. And I feel like it's, you can never talk about it too much, which is being curious, being open, and then raising your hand. Oh yeah. <laughs> those yeah. three things of yeah. like, I'm, I'm observing what's going on. I'm curious about what's happening and, Oh, I think I could do that. And the more I I'm a big person that, or I talk a lot about value and the, what's the value you're bringing. Yeah. And so the idea of like, how can I add value and how can I grow? Uh, so it sounds like you weren't afraid of things you didn't know how to do. Yeah. And it was like, here, let me, like, I'll, I'll do that. Why not? I'll try that. Yeah. And it, there, there's some, uh, and it starts early. So like at my first base, mm -hmm. uh, they would always say, don't volunteer for anything. Right. You hear that in the military, <laughs> don't volunteer for anything. They'll screw you. Right. So I knew a guy that when they were handing out assignments for work, he would stand over there with a broom to make it look like he was doing something. And, uh, <laughs> They would hand out all the assignments. So what are you doing? He goes, nothing, just standing here. And they'd be like, well, then you get this easy job. And uh, how did that serve him going forward? So they would say, hey, we need somebody to get qualified on the M60 machine gun. I would go, I wouldn't do that. I want to shoot a machine gun. That sounds awesome. Mm -hmm. But the good news is that when those alerts came and they were handing out those jobs, I got to sit in the truck because I had a machine gun qualification. Whereas the guy holding the broom that didn't want to have anything qualified would end up standing on that red line in the rain, or I got to be in a building, or I got to be, right? So as you add capability, you also add uh, the need for people to have you in certain positions, right? Yes. And it creates more opportunity. One of the things you and I talked about briefly, and I think it would be great to- <laughs> That sounds like a weird analogy. Doesn't no, it? it's it's so good. And I, it's descriptive. And I feel like for people that are considering the military, you and I had a little bit of a conversation about this before, but I, you, you gave a great, a view or an assessment of people that are considering like, should I go into mil the military right out of high school? If, if you have the option, <laughs> you know, or should I pursue a degree first and then go in or, you know, do you have a perspective on what's the best path or maybe even giving a view of what that looks like depending. So if yeah. you take the enlisted path, you know, do you have less opportunity as somebody that's going to be, go to school and then and then be admitted post-college, which I think you go in as an officer at that point. Is that right? I'm not sure. Yeah. It, there's a lot of different paths there. Yeah. You know, let's say uh, you're more trade oriented and you want to go focus on those. Well, the military has excellent trade schools, right? You come out ultimately qualified to be an aircraft mechanic, a machinist, a, you pick something. You want to be in a creative field? They do journalism. They do photography. They have a photography school and video school out of Fort Meade. Right. And they send those people out in the town to do like documentaries and stuff as their projects. Right. So I see them constantly at the torpedo factory because the bus will drop them off at the end of King Street. Right? Yeah. And they're yeah. like, hey, what are you working on today? Can I talk to you for a few minutes? Right. And I'm yeah. like, oh, hell yeah. Right. I know exactly <laughs> who you are. Yeah. And uh, they'll all oh, send it to you. They never, but that's okay. Yeah. You know, but the point is like there's a lot of variety there. So if I went in the military, like my circumstance, I needed a job. Uh, was college for me? Eh. I wanted to go to college. I took college prep stuff in school, but my small town wasn't really about like get, helping me find those opportunities. And the reality is like I took a college course at my first base and I wasn't interested in doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, I was interested in like drinking my paycheck, which I did, right? For the first probably six months I was in. Right, right. You know, because I was like, I've never had this much money, $8,000 a year. But yeah. anyway, uh, but at the same time, I knew people that were focused on college, uh, would do their college in the military, 
maybe get out and then go into ROTC somewhere or into some of the other programs they have. They have they used to have a bootstrap program where you could go from being an enlisted person to the academy prep school and then ultimately into the academy. Right. So right. there's a lot of different paths. A lot of different ways to pursue it. Right. So I always tell people if you get a chance to be an officer, do that. Their retirement's a lot better. Right. And they get paid better. Period. However, there's nothing wrong with being an enlisted person. Um, just understand that your retirement pay is going to be dramatically less if you decide to stay in for the long haul. Right. When you were retiring and you're making that decision, what were some of the Did you retire at the time, like as soon as you were available to retire? Was there like much of a decision of did you have more time and you left before? You know, tell me a little bit yeah. like it's, it's predetermined, right? Like what your retirement We are celebrating the official release of Teresa's book, Soft Skills I Learned the Hard Way, on September 28th at the Ald Shabine in Fairfax, Virginia. Please register for your free ticket through Eventbrite. Go to eventbrite.com and search for Soft Skills I Learned the Hard Way or by Teresa's name. During the event, we'll raffle off over $1,000 in prizes. Teresa will be signing books. There will be free food and drinks as well as an opportunity to network. Don't miss out on this opportunity to connect with other relatable listeners at this event sponsored by TFA Soft Skills. Uh, sort of. You can retire at 20. Uh, you can stay as long as into the 30s, 30 years. Okay. That's really going to depend on where you're at. So if I was a cop that whole time, like a, guard, a security person, um, it probably would have behooved me to stay in to 30 because that would mean that my retirement pay would have been a lot more. Because I would have got more promotions. And, right. Right. Yeah. However, uh, because I was doing uh, space work and into the technical stuff, I knew almost immediately that I could make probably four times what I was making uh, when I walked out the door. Right. So every day that, so you got to do the math. Every day that I stay in after 20, I might as well be writing a check to the government. Got it. And you knew, and you had a good transition plan then of a lot of opportunity. Like, did you know already where you were going to? pursue like you didn't necessarily it seemed based on your skill set like it was pretty easy for you to land post so when you retired I, I would uh yes but i would recommend to anybody transitioning to anything to go and do an analysis of what they're trying to transition into okay so when i got out i went out for six months before i decided to retire and interviewed everybody that retired before me I said, what did you ask? What did you do? What did you sign up for? What did you not sign up for? What kind of jobs did you look for? What did you ask for in those jobs? How much time off did you get? Did you get stock options? Right? And I made a spreadsheet. And then I knew getting out what I wanted to ask. And it was all based on a, a information that was provided to me from other people, from mm -hmm. my peers. Right? Smart. I even did the uh, career counseling through the VA, where they make you take a battery of tests mm -hmm. to see what kind of career field you should be in, which I thought was fascinating. What did they tell you? Uh, so that was a funny story, <laughs> right? So I took the battery of tests and uh, I had to drive down to Richmond to get my results because I missed the appointment, right? I just couldn't make it. And um, this lady goes, well, there's three outcomes to these tests, right? And she goes, one is it clearly delineates something that you should be involved in, this focus area for your, you know, your skills. The second person is, it gives us no information on where they, they should go. They're not really good at pretty much anything. And we say, hey, these tests are full of crap. Don't worry about it. Go live your life, right? 
And then there's the third one, You're which is... You're not good at anything. So they don't tell them that. They just say, you know, yeah. these are crap. Nothing, don't worry about okay. it. Okay. Right? It don't was not determined, it. essentially. Yeah. Like, yeah. And then the third one is, uh, it looks really great. You can do just about anything you want. Go and do whatever it is you feel like you should be doing. Right? Which isn't that far off from the second one, if you think about it. Correct. But that's where I landed. The third, okay. So yeah. She said, your scores are great, like in all these different areas. And I credit that to... I worked with engineers before I got out for like 10 years, right? I was exposed to so much different types of information and ways of thinking that it crossed boundaries, right? Right. And allowed me to yeah. connect that stuff together. But it didn't really provide any value. I was going to go get the job I was going to get anyway. Right? Okay. So, and then how was that transition just for people that are, that might be listening, that might be up on that retirement and coming, going from from that to the corporate space. Yeah, yeah there, there's a lot to unpack there because it depends on what role you're in. So if I was in the army and I was in infantry and I was serving, you know, in a small unit overseas and doing certain functions, um, it might be hard to transition away from that. Uh, my kids are, my wife and kids are living on base. Everything's paid for. I don't have to worry about rent. I don't have to worry about electricity bills. Right? I don't have to worry about a mortgage. Right? I just have to focus on the mission at hand. If I'm working in a job like I had, it was really close to corporate. So that transition wasn't that hard. I had like contractors working for me. So I knew what their Got lives it. were like and how they worked. And, you know, so that wasn't that difficult for me. But there is a, there is a big um, discussion point there where they talk about you take these families, you take them off post or off base and you put them out to the community and they really lack a lot of the life skills that you and I might have, especially the longer they've been in. Mm-hmm. Great. And, Cause it's just a, what it's almost like, the lifers back in the day, right? That like it, everybody worked, you know, if you work for IBM, you worked for IBM your whole life. And yeah. like that IBM culture and the way that IBM worked was sort of all you knew. And yeah. so if you were to be plucked out of that, I mean, it's kind of the same thing. What was art, when you think about the art and the creative side of you, was that thread or were you tapping into that at all during your, the kind of military phase or when you started talking about being creative in the booze space and how you're able to apply that in terms of problem solving. Like when did the creation of yeah, the light bulb moment kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when I was a kid, I was in art, like I took all the classes. You knew that that like you, you identified well, and knew you were creative or I like you... drawing. Okay. You know, there's a dichotomy there. I also supported the community of artists in my school. Like I set up a booth at our art fair in our small town, but when that you was were little when I was in high school. Okay. Right. Yeah. And because uh, I was always trying to be a joiner, like I was on student council and I was a little guy, I got beat up a lot, right? So this was my way of making up for that. Wrestling and that. Usually the way art manifested itself for me was I'm sad, I'm gonna draw a picture. A girl breaks up with me, I'm gonna draw a picture. I'm gonna draw a lot of pictures, you know? And then like, I'd be happy again and I'd stop drawing. So I met my wife uh, when I was in the honor guard and um, I was going through a phase where I was drawing a lot. Then I met Kim and I stopped. Like, I just, like, I would do characters for people and stuff, but you know, I'd be like, yeah, I have no motivation there. And uh, when I retired, I took a printmaking class as part of my degree program at Mason for, for international security. And Susan Goldman kind of said, here's a switch. You know, you can be creative using the way this thinking works. And there was something about printmaking that resonated with me. And I was like, holy shit, I should be doing this. And so I started creating imagery that wasn't like, you know, sad and sort of mm -hmm. focusing on kind of different kinds of outcomes. And uh, that was really powerful for me, that one moment. And that's why I met Erwin. Uh, I, I would, after I graduated, I would sneak into the studio and print my blocks. And he was the studio manager. Erwin uh, was my business partner. 
What does print your blocks mean? Uh, so I would go to my kid's soccer practice and have a piece of wood with a drawing on it, and I'd carve it with hand tools when my kids are practicing, and then I'd start using the Dremel in the parking lot, right? So you hear, right? Oh, we've heard that noise yep. next door. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and from your own husband. Yeah, I know. Now and, he's, uh, it's right. like you're, you're the, yeah, you're seeking It's like out. locusts. I know. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So anyway, so like that evolved, uh, you know, so that created this, started the, of this evolution into art. So, so the program, the, the master's program that you got at Mason was what? Yeah. So right after that, I uh, decided to go back to school and get a bachelor's in fine art. So I went back to Mason, I got a bachelor's in fine art and then um, ultimately had enough GI bill. Uh, money I was going to say over. that was paid yeah. for. Yeah, okay. Uh, I wouldn't say paid for, it was supported by. Okay. Right. And then, um, I had money left over in the GI Bill, so I got a master's degree in fine art. So the master's degree in fine art is based on social engagement and art making. So it's about community building through using. And you did all this while you have your full time job. Oh, yeah, yeah. And And you're raising kids. Well, Kim is very patient. My wife is extremely patient. (laughs) She's lovely. Yeah. And we have birthdays near each other. Yeah. We're kindred spirits. Uh, I I would tuck my kids in via Zoom, basically, mm. like FaceTime. Do you have. I mean, that's a lot of school. So even even if it's something that you love, right? I I mean, in terms of your curiosity or your, and especially at this point, right, where you've like had a career, you've retired from that career to engage and take that on, was that all out of your curiosity to understand that whole world better, to be able to monetize it? Like what was the driving interest in pursuing that degree and then ultimately in the master's yeah i appreciate that's a good question this is where kim would say something about like you know i've been trying to get pet in therapy for a while i make a joke there yeah but i've always had one eye so if you grow up without much mm-hmm. uh, you try to keep an eye on the horizon for the like another opportunity i wouldn't thing. say opportunity though next thing like yeah, the next is thing. it a security well it is right yeah. because i i don't so I have this in my notes. It's always important to put yourself in a position where you get to make a choice. Because if you have mm. to take whatever is given to you, you're going to fail because you only have one opportunity to choose from. But if you can have as many things kind of going at once and then pick the one you want, right? It gives you the opportunity to have some control over your own destiny. And a lot of a lot of people don't do that. So I'm always thinking about the next thing, right? Mm. So Kim, my wife, she says, you know, I guess I'm going to do pickleball when I retire. We've got a couple of years till retirement. I know what I'm doing in retirement. I'm going to do like, I'm going to get rid of the booze thing and do the art thing. And I'm going to do the nonprofit work and I'm going to do the supporting kids and communities and veterans and, and use that as a means to travel and, you know, fulfill the things I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, that's not necessarily saying that that's really going to happen, but it's certainly got some foundational stuff worked out there. Right. And when did you start your business with Erwin? Well, that was like 10 years ago. Okay. Yeah, and there's good choices to make there. So that plan actually uh, came about. We were in class, uh, bachelors, and uh, we were having dinner before class one night in the Johnson Center, you know, the big food hall, if you will. And um, four of us are sitting there. So what are we going to do with this art? Well, we should start a business. Four of us? Sure, why not? Okay, what do we got? Do we have any assets? No. Do we have any money? No. Do we have like a community of people that will support us? No. Do we have any clients? No. Okay. <laughs> Um, how are we going to start a business if we have none of these things? Well, we make good art. Well, yeah, we do, but we're still learning too, right? So maybe we don't make as good art as we think. 
So we started thinking about it a little bit more deeply, like how can we get to that point then, get those things and uh, work towards those goals. So we decided to start a student organization. And so we started a student organization, went to the student organization group, and we put our bylaws together and elected officers, and they gave us 2,500 bucks a quarter to use for our projects, which happened to be art. So they paid for our supplies, uh, bought food for our openings that we would have in our studio, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And it gave us an opportunity to build this community of people. And in our bylaws, we said that community members could join. So then we reached out to the larger community around Fairfax, which then created opportunities like somebody that's a member at the Torpedo Factory said, hey, we want you to join our studio. Ah. Oh, I have a press that I'm getting rid of. Would you like it? Right. So now we have access to supplies and materials and people and other places. And uh, about five years into that, we decided to back away from the student organization and start our own business. And what is your business again? Uh, that's a good question. What's it called? It's Sergeant Tam. Can you go, like, do you have a website and if oh, yeah, people yeah. want to, like, yeah. see your art and yeah, purchase Tam. your art? Com. Okay. Yeah. It's rudimentary. We'll make sure it's in the in the notes. But but it's not bad. I mean, it's so a funny thing is you learn stuff at every one of those steps. Erwin uh, filed for bankruptcy the day before we dropped our LLC papers. So I had to exclude him from the business immediately. Wow. The upside to that is um, he's turned around his finances. And the other upside is I'm a pretty uh, stand-up guy, so I haven't screwed him. I own all of our intellectual property. and But so the, the advantage is I have a better business mind than Erwin. Uh, he has a much better like vibe. So he runs our social media and stuff. Uh -huh. And uh, yeah. people go, man, I love that post you had on Facebook or Instagram. Right. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. Right? I, what I love about everything you just said That's really funny. is I feel like you articulate and then in practice have done a great job of what I would characterize as the intellectual and the cerebral analysis of decisions, right? When you talk about and the way you talk about things and being able to, it's not luck, it's not happenstance, it's not this, it's a combination of thinking through the, what you need to do a certain thing. And then there's like a process to get to that thing and kind of putting in the grind and putting in the work. And then as you talk and you give examples, you can start to hear how those things lead to other opportunities. And I feel like that's such a great way to hear about how does you know from a networking perspective or how do you how do the dots connect to to the success that you're looking for whatever that means whether it's personal or professional that right. that there is a intention and there's a intention and there is an intellectual component to it for it to all kind of work and come together and that and that it's been this thing that's been building for you over a decade to get to a point where, oh, you, you know, and, and longer. And now, like, as you talk about kind of that next phase or what you want to do next, like the table's been set in, in, in a way that like, it's, it looks like probably from the outside, which I think happens a lot with all of us. We always sort of look at other people and they're like, well, that just happened overnight for that person. Right. And they don't really think about all the steps that it took to get you to a point where you're having a functioning, you know, you're at the torpedo factory in a, in a board position, right? You're, you're teaching an entrepreneur class, like the, where we started this conversation. It's interesting how that you could, you could make a, an assumption about that. And it's like, wow, when you think about the path, it's, it's really interesting. When you think about the creative and maybe this applies to boost too. I don't know. One of the things we chatted about earlier is just, I like to start to give, 
practical counsel on what are the characteristics that make you successful? And so you have this interesting vantage point, either as someone in the military, someone in the corporate America, and even in the creative world. And maybe they're similar, maybe they're different, but could you talk a little bit about what your perspective is on that in terms of if I want to be any of those things, you know, what are some good characteristics that would suit me or that I would be a good fit? Well, we had entered earlier. I think I see myself as a toolbox, mm-hmm. right? And I need to add as many tools in there as humanly possible. So if I'm in the military in a certain job, I might be able to, I might, might need to be a, a good marksman. So that means I should receive training on marksmanship and like involve myself in being a student of being a good marksman. It's about trigger pull. It's about breath. It's about sight. It's, it's about all these things, you know, how the gun works, all these things. If I want to be an artist, then it's going to be about the tools that I'm using and the opportunities and the different techniques. And so I build up that toolbox. Mm-hmm. If I'm a Booz Allen, it's going to be about the business skills, right? It's about how I present business information. How do I use tools like SharePoint, right? How do I put things on the back end? And the key focus uh, for me, especially at Booz, is one thing I don't say out loud very often is I'm really competitive. Where I want to be part of a team and I want our team to be successful and I put the team first, right? Um, I also want to make sure that I can survive if cuts come, right? So if I can do SharePoint and I can do Excel and I can do um, all of these things outside of what I'm a subject matter expert in, then I'll be less likely to be the one in the cutting block because I provide the most value for the money. And I find that to be like something a lot of people don't focus on. Like, oh, that's not my job. Oh, bullshit. It's all your job, mm-hmm. right? I would be willing to do anything, right? So when I was in the military, um, I got in trouble once and they made me wash all the cars in the fleet by hand in my off time. So I put headphones on and I was out there singing to myself and stuff. And my boss that punished me came out and said, well, why are you enjoying this? Well, why not? I made the decision that got me here. So why, why not embrace this activity too then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, he actually cut my time doing it short because I was enjoying, enjoying it too much. Right. So I was like, sweet. Right. <laughs> yeah. I love that. <laughs> but, yeah. it, but it's because like you have to put yourself in a position where like if I had grumbled about it, it was a bastard. He would have said, oh, that guy's a bastard. Right. The evaluation came up. Right. But no, Pat Sargent took on. He re- I made recommendations. He took that to heart. He changed himself and he put it the best self forward. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, that happens young in those kind of foundational moments. It happens when you're older. I'm focused on retirement. It's important that I don't put myself in a position where they say he's old and expensive. We need the value that he provides still. Right. And then what about the creative side with respect to, I'm thinking about the rejection aspect or the critique aspect. Uh, it's interesting. I'm doing something today, actually later with a client where I'm talking about performance management. And I, I've i talked about performance management, I don't know how many times in my career. And I was like, God, I'm so sick of saying the same thing. So how can I make this different? And I was looking at constructive feedback as something to talk about. And what's interesting about it, when you go online and you look at constructive feedback, there's tons of articles on how to give it. There's not very much out there on how to take it and how to use it and how to be a person that's really, everyone says they're open to it until you really sit down and have that conversation. And we all have this like fight or flight response to it. So I think of creative space. And for me as a not as creative a person, I would feel it's so personal, the what you create in terms of 
putting out into the world and then and then the harshness that you might get back or even in school as a student right you're creating all the time and you're putting your heart and soul in it and then someone comes along and says that's crap or you didn't do this this and this so from a thick skin being able to kind of withstand that kind of feedback in that space is that a characteristic people need maybe you kind of need it in business too actually but you know what are there any differentiating factors for people that are creatives We are celebrating the official release of Teresa's book, Soft Skills I Learned the Hard Way, on September 28th at the Ald Shabin in Fairfax, Virginia. Please register for your free ticket through Eventbrite. Go to eventbrite.com and search for Soft Skills I Learned the Hard Way or by Teresa's name. During the event, we'll raffle off over $1,000 in prizes. Teresa will be signing books. There will be free food and drinks as well as an opportunity to network. Don't miss out on this opportunity to connect with other relatable listeners at this event sponsored by TFA Soft Skills. Yeah, there's kind of two perspectives there. When I was getting my graduate degree, I had a professor named Suzanne Carboneau, and she was an art critic by, by profession. And uh, present your ideas and the theoretical underpinnings of the work that you're doing. And so I went and studied up on French uh, relational aesthetics. As one, as one does. As one does. <laughs> And uh, yeah. had a presentation all lined up and gave it. And she goes, yeah, that's bullshit. She ate my lunch. Right. So I worked harder at learning that material throughout more names and more aspects and how it parlayed into like this guy serving spaghetti in his art gallery, right, as a, his art performance. And she ate my lunch again. So I set up a meeting with her and I said, hey, I think you don't like me. Right. I think uh, I don't know if it's a veteran thing or whatever. Right. You know, you hippies are like that joke. And uh, she goes, no, you don't believe in what you're really saying, right? It's not part of you. It's not coming from you. This is coming from a place that you studied and not from a place that you believe in. And um, that's how I kind of evolved into the socially engaged art practice that I'm into, right? By wow. having that push. And if I didn't open myself to that opportunity, I would have walked away a bitter person saying, oh, fuck her. What does she know about this? Right. Right. But the reality was is she was just trying to help me. And it took me a while to see that. And that was a huge uh, boost because she ended up on my committee for my thesis. And like, she's fantastic. That story of going and having that conversation with her, I think, is such a good note <laughs> and suggestion that people often overlook. Because they take that, re whatever, if that was rejection twice and stew yeah, on that it. to your point of right. like, F you, and you don't know what you're talking about because I think our ego gets in the way because of whatever that's like triggering. Yeah. So the, the idea that you're willing to, it's like you have to put yourself out there even more. You've been rejected twice and now you're like, geez, I'm going to go and sit in the room and you have to, you made yourself vulnerable again. Right. But if you didn't do that, given what you just said, then well, yeah, you wouldn't advance. Yes. Right? And there's another, there is actually another part of that. So you put your effort in and you create these things and it could be anything. It could be a performance plan. It could be a way that you're going to put a, a campaign at work. Um, it could be a piece of art. You know, not everybody is going to respond to that the same way because you may not be able to articulate it as you know to the detail that you're interested in getting it it may not be a right fit for that moment in time not everybody wants it on their wall kind of thing and i think the only time it really ever gets hurtful to me because i understand all of that conceptually 
is this is going to sound really weird, okay? But I can see an art piece that you have in mind when I drive down the road. Yeah. And I always check to make sure it's hanging in its frame properly still. Like in my mind, I go, I hope that's still sitting in there. Like, because. That it's still in that space? Uh, or That it's oh, in that... the frame and not like hanging uh... in there, like, like effed up. Because I still have a caretaker mentality for the piece, even though I don't own it. And so, like, if I saw that wadded up uh, but next to your garbage can, like, that would be extremely hurtful oh to me. God. Right? I would probably rescue it and iron it. And, you know what I mean? Maybe make a book cover out of it or something. Uh -huh. Because of the investment that's in that. And that's kind of the danger, right? Where like, You get attached. Yeah. Let me ask you this. So it's easier for me to give it to you and never see it again. Oh, maybe we should. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. That's <laughs> but then doesn't it, sounds... it feel good too? Oh, yeah, yeah, we've yeah. had this conversation oh, yeah. where you drive by and you're like, yeah. man, we are enjoying that. And it, the thing about what you created, it's Buster Keaton, right? Yeah. I got that right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, my husband has, I would say, a unique <clears throat> view on pulp culture that is pretty cool and different. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that you had something that resonates with him, who I would characterize him as a creative first oh, yeah, yeah. above all things. Yeah. And so it's just really cool. Right. And the fact that we're neighbors and then, you know, I don't know, we could, the whole sort of. Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a lot there. <laughs> I know right? there's, a, there's but, so much there. But, um, but you would never get any of that without a, a little bit of risk and a little bit of vulnerability. Yeah. Right? Really yeah. is what, what we're saying. For sure. For sure. So when you think about your, uh, the work that you've done and the people you've interacted with. And uh, usually I frame this question, but I think you know me pretty well. You know what I'm doing in terms of my business. So I'm just going to ask, and you can, you can come at this from any direction with respect to the different lives you've lived. But when you think of the soft skills space and you think of what I would call kind of the um, interpersonal skills that augment the technical skills of which you have many, right? We've talked about your career in the military and the technical acumen you built there, obviously in the in the business and corporate space, right, within Space Command, and then as a creative practitioner. So there's all these different disciplines that you've been a student of and learned how. As you think about those and you think about your own path, and now you're around all these entrepreneurial students, which I think is great and it's another perspective that you have and you think about the soft skills that would best position people for success what what are the one or two that are important to you well obviously learning i would like to actually kind of come at that from a different perspective sure so um i think it's important for people to feed themselves and shelter themselves and like take care of themselves first right so like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm -hmm. So if you get to get a job, right, get a job and try to put creativity into that job. If you're a runner for Amazon, then maybe you think about things while you're doing the running. You know, you're putting your creative pieces together in the back of your head. I do it when I cut my grass. Right? I do mm -hmm. my best thinking like when I'm cutting my grass. Right. You know, and then look for opportunities to be creative outside of that and try to work on making that that switch so that maybe, you know, once you figure out a way to get your art, whatever the product is, whatever whatever the service is, right, uh, to make that switch, then do that. But don't try to make your art feed you and shelter you and stuff right out of the gate because you will kill off your desire to be creative, mm -hmm. right? You know, that's a big burden. Elizabeth Gilbert has a book called Big Magic, and she talks about exactly that. And, you know, take care of yourself, 
take care of the creativity, eventually, maybe you can grow it to a point where it becomes your life. So if you're dependent on it for those basic needs, there's too much pressure to then flow and be open to the ideas and opportunities. It's it's hard to have both. Well, think about it. If I'm uh, so that's where the starving artist thing comes from. You know, like that whole idea of a starving starving artist is bullshit. You don't have to be starving to be an artist, right? To be creative, right? You can be, you know, you could get a job at. So okay, I know somebody. I interview people for my class, as you know. Like I bring artists in. So this one young lady, she's a graphic design student, and she said, "But I've always wanted to be a dancer, right?" And she's kind of heavy. Not mm-hmm. a typical dancer, right? Stereotypical. And uh, so she went out and got a government job in graphic design, which then I leave work and that job is behind me and I can focus on dance. And so she actually bought a dance studio from somebody else, uh, turned it into this. Uh, she does a specific style of Latin dancing and uh, turned it into an award winning competitive team that travels the world in her spare time. Mm-hmm. So what really drives her? Dance. Mm -hmm. What pays her bills? Graphic design for the government, right? Right. And what's wrong with that, right? And maybe at some point, um, by the way, some of my other students have taken my class and have partnered up with her. So one sells empanadas at her dance things. And and so she's driving a community of people in that kind of, um, in that area, right? To be entrepreneurial and lean on their talents. So from a relationship perspective, when I think about the soft skill space, it sounds like relationships, connectivity is a super important part. Yeah. But also having a desire, like there's nothing wrong with having that desire. Your husband's a great example. You know, he does one job during the day and he's working on his screenplays at night. Right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that doesn't, or working on his art that he puts Mm -hmm. on the wall or, you know, writing a skateboard, you know, motion is a form of art form. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a whole guy, I have a guy that I share at Mesa that teaches and his whole art practice is about play and movement, right? And in community community involvement. Yeah. So like it's those types of, there's no reason to say it's if or, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's how about all of these things? Yeah. You just do them. Yeah. And then what about for you? I don't when know you, if I answered that. But anyway. You kind of answered it. I mean, I think this is what I, you said learning mm-hmm. first. So I think being curious and learning. I think the relationship and the networking component. But I think as it relates to creativity as a whole and how to incorporate that into your life in a way that is meaningful and with some, as we talked about before, some intention about potentially future success. I mean, look, I started my own business five years ago. Everything I read said, it's gonna take you five years, it's gonna take you five years till you feel like you either were making what you made when you left um, you know, there's sort of all these people before me that have said it's this proven thing. And I read that and I like, I'll do it in three. I didn't do it in three. I did it in five. So you think like, you know, so, but the patience to get to five and the patience to get to the rejection, you know, all the things you have to go through to get to the five. If I had quit at three, because I thought I should have made it by three. Oh my gosh. If I had missed out on the last two years, that would be, that would suck. Because I've been able to do great things the last year, you know. So it's that idea of the long game and oh, yeah. being patient and and the failures. You can turn for those. Sure, for I mean, sure. You can turn those into positives. Yes. Right. Yeah. I spent. Uh, I had. To, I wanted to make a cart for these containers I have to make mobile art making. Mm-hmm. And I was using a piece of plywood with some wheels on it, and I thought I got to really step this up. This looks like shit, right? And so I 
custom made this extruded aluminum cart. With, you know, it was really great. And uh, when I got it done, I dawned on me it won't fit through a standard door, and it's really heavy. And so I ended up uh, cutting it up in little pieces and making poured aluminum pieces with this other guy with them. Like we melted it down. That was like fifteen hundred bucks. And a lot of time. Oh yeah. Probably to like get that, to. you know I short you know small margins right i can't afford a loss of 1500 bucks right you know my art business is separate from my life right uh, there's a reason for that you know my wife but also because um you know it, it's not realistic for me to take from uh, this other part to pay for that I see, yeah i see what you're saying yeah think about yourself maybe at 20. uh i i ask this question a lot of people I chat with, which is just your advice to your younger self, anything you would tell him that would have made the path a little bit easier, anything that you've learned along the way in terms of, since we brought up constructive feedback, like what are some things for you um, that have been meaningful that, that you think would have helped you? Yeah, I don't think I, so I, I make a joke where I say, if I could go back in time, I would have been a ski instructor in the winter and a park ranger in the summer. Okay. You know, live in a van, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, I can tell you where that came from. My stepdad used to live in his van. I would fly my little brother and I, and I and I out for summer vacations, and we'd live in his van with him, wherever he was. Hmm. Yeah. But um, the real, but realistically, I don't have any advice for myself when I was younger. I think I, I like where I'm at, um, and I wouldn't change it. I like my kids. I like my wife. Like not necessarily about change so that's yeah, but, what, that's it to me it's kind of an answer that's like i wouldn't change anything because what happened is meant to be and i get that i think what i'm asking you is along the way there's been some guidance along the way there's been something that's probably been a theme that if you had had a mentor at the right time or some big brother or someone to sort of say put their arm around you and give you some counsels but i had those yeah. Right. So what did they tell you? You know, like I had a, when I was in my mid twenties, I had real anger issues. Right? I used to mm -hmm. have a flash anger, like temper. And I worked for this chief master sergeant, right? He was getting ready to go over my job and uh, E9, lots of stripes. Mm -hmm. And uh, somebody had taken this giant stack of paper and put it in my cubicle bin. And when I opened it, it just flowed out. And it was a big document that was unbound. So I would have had to go through these 800 pages and I was pissed. And I grabbed the rest of the document and I just threw it over my shoulder and hit that chief right in the chest. Papers went everywhere. It was terrible. I expected him to yell at me. Uh, I just basically assaulted him with a volume, like a, a phone book. Right. right. And he put his arm around me and he goes, Sergeant, you really need to work on those anger issues. And that was the only time we talked about it. That was all he needed to say. And so like having that patience with me mm -hmm. was really important. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's something I worked on after that for a long time. Right. So it got to the point where like the employees I had were like, man, how can you ever get mad? I said, well, it's, it's a thing. <laughs> it's a thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. That's a, yeah. good, a really good example because I feel like I agree with you that like the path is the path and that's what makes it so great. And you yeah. have this great success of both fulfillment on the personal, you know, so that's what you want professional and professionally, but like, but I would never would have taken that as a younger person. Right. Like I never would have received that information. Sure. And then sure. did something about it. I had to be, it had to be right then in that moment by that person. Face. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that's true of most people. Yeah. I can <laughs> like give you a whole bunch be, of those. Yeah. It has to right? be like in your face in order to like really be able to hear it. Well, this has been a treat. Are you sure? <laughs> yes. 
Yes, it's been so, great. I learned so much about do I, you. Do I pay you now? or? <laughs> no, this is great. I loved, I mean, I knew some of it, but I just love the, um, you're a great storyteller. I love the specificity in which you talk about things. And I think you have a, you know, there's just a lot that you have to share with the world and you're doing it in a lot of different ways. And I think it's great. So thank well, I, you. I appreciate you having me. And uh, I love watching this happening next door, like all of it. <laughs> You know, your kids growing and your husband doing his things and you guys are a joy to be. Oh, right back at you. For sure. We're very blessed to have you right next door. Thank you, Pat, for coming on the show and sharing your journey with us. Really appreciate your thoughts on always willing to take the next opportunity and say yes, how you kept an eye on the horizon and still do so that you're in a position to make a choice and how you and your fellow art students strategically created their business as a student organization first. Thank you to Missy for producing this episode and to Hannah for your support. A big thank you to our relatable community. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment and subscribe and rate us on your favorite streaming platform. Relatable is sponsored by TFA Soft Skills, and you can find more information about Relatable and our sponsor by visiting tfasoftskills.com. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable. Stay connected.